0: And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Let me pray for us and we're going to begin. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather, Lord, for the opportunity to sing praises to your name, Lord, to um, just lift our voices in celebration, Lord, and hope. Father, I thank you for the opportunity now to open the truth of your word. Lord, just remind us of the importance of what we're doing right now. Remind us of the foundation, Lord, of what you've given us and what you've shown us. May we build our lives upon it. May it change us, challenge us, transform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're continuing our series this morning that we've entitled The Sword of Truth. And it's a model I've been teaching. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll be familiar with this. If not, I'm going to give you just a quick synopsis so you can catch up with us and kind of know where we are. Uh, I became more and more concerned during the pandemic, especially that the local church had become too reliant on what happens right here on Sunday morning. Here's what I mean by that. I was concerned that you felt like you had to either be here or tune into us in order to worship and, and by the way praise the Lord we're back in person we're gonna to continue to do this. this is mandated in Scripture we are gonna meet and continue to meet because the Lord tells us to do this but I just became concerned if this happened again right if something else happened if another pandemic came if something far worse and you were in your homes and couldn't leave or maybe couldn't leave your neighborhood could you worship on Sunday morning without being able to tune in could you study God's word without your Sunday school teacher teaching you? And so we've, we've taught you over the last many weeks this model. It's a very simple model that you can apply to any scripture that will help you ask questions and understand and learn. And so the idea is we're equipping you. We're equipping you now to be able to study God's word, to be able to learn God's word, to be able to teach God's word. And maybe even in, within your homes being able to lead your families in a time of devotion, in a time of study, even in a time of worship, if for whatever reason we couldn't come together as a body of believers. And so we use this sword as our model. And so each week I've kind of used this as a prop to help you understand a little bit better what we're doing to kind of explain these questions to you so you can get this and remember this. It's just kind of a way for you to see it visually. And it kind of occurs to me this week, I take this back, and put it in my office during the week. It occurs to me every week when I take this thing back out, how heavy this is, right? And how strong the people that wielded this must have been. But for us, this is a prop, right? You see me carrying it. And it's kind of neat looking. And, and every kid that I pass on the way back on the Sunday morning wants to touch it. And I try to let them. Right, just don't stab your brother or sister, and you can hold it if you promise me that. It's neat to see, but you don't really think of me as holding a weapon right now. Nobody's in danger. You don't think I'm gonna come attack any of you with this sword, right? But 300 years ago, 400 years ago, when you saw this, this was a formidable weapon, right? And it just occurred to me this week when when we think about the sword and the sword method, and I've read this passage of scripture to you before, it's based on this. Hebrews 4 12 says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? We we need to be reminded that just as this sword was used in battle centuries ago, God's word is still used in battle today, right? This is our weapon. And so guys, I'm gonna challenge you just for a second before I give you the model again and we begin to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Guys that hunt. How many have been hunting so far this season? Just a show of hands, let's be honest. Okay, quite a few in here. I'm sure plenty at home, by the way. Welcome at home if you're watching. Hey, if you're in the deer stand watching this morning, kudos, by the way. I'd love to hear from you. (laughs) Snap a selfie, send it to me. I'll show it to everybody. I'd love it if you're watching it from deer stand. Come see us next week in person. We'll give you this week off, okay? But if you've been hunting at all the last many weeks, right, you understand you don't just walk into the deer stand the first moment, and that's the first time you've picked up your bow in a year, is it? You've had that thing sighted in. You've probably had the strings replaced. You've been in your backyard or at the range. You've used that thing a bunch of times before you get it into the stand, and you actually use it to try to shoot something with, right? It's the same thing with God's Word. I'm fearful that too many people take God's word, they set it on the shelf, it collects a little dust for the course of the week, and the next week they pick it back up, right? We're not using it as a weapon. We're not siding in with it, right? We're not using it as our foundation. We're not trying to defeat the enemy with God's word. But the scripture says that this is our weapon. It's just like a sword. And so we take this sword and we use this as a model in order to study scripture. Now here are the four questions I've been asking for the last many weeks Hopefully for a lot of you, it's kind of ingrained in your memory and you know them now. If it's brand new, hopefully it'll make sense to you as we walk through the questions together. So we think about a sword, a sword when I hold it for battle points up. So the first question we ask of any scripture, right? If we're going to study God's word using this method, using this model, the first question we ask is what can I learn about God? The second question, what can I learn about man as I hold the sword? What can I learn about sin What can I learn about obedience? So you can take any passage of Scripture. You can take one verse. You can take four verses. You can take an entire chapter, and you can ask these questions. What can I learn about God? What can I learn about man? What can I learn about sin? What can I learn about obedience? And then we ask kind of what's the main idea of the text, and then how can we apply it? And you can imagine if you were leading a Bible study in your home with your family or at work, or in your neighborhood, you can imagine how those simple questions could generate an awful lot of discussion. How they could generate an awful lot of understanding. And so over the last many weeks, I've been preaching my sermons based on this model. We've been asking and answering these questions and then delving a little more deeply into each one of these. This morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I gave you this last week and told you to take it home, read through it study through it using the sword method maybe with your family by the way if you haven't done that with your children yet you need to be doing that you need to spend some time during the week and just use this sword method it's very simple sit in the living room with your kids pick your favorite passage of scripture whatever that might be read a few verses and then say hey kids what can we learn about God in this scripture and just let them talk what can we learn about man what can we learn about sin what can we learn about obedience how do we apply this What's the main idea? You'll be amazed at how your kids will spend real time seeing this and thinking through this and understanding exactly what this scripture is teaching. Now, before we delve into 1 Corinthians 11, because this morning is Lord's Supper, and by the way, hopefully when you came in this morning, you got the little cups out there, and when you came in the lobby, if you didn't get one and you want to get one now, feel free to go grab one. We're going to do that at the end of the service together. If you are in our overflow in the fellowship hall there's some out in the lobby there. Feel free to grab one out there as well. But before we get into the text, and I'm going to spend some time working through it, I want to give you just some very specific, important, big-picture truths about the Lord's Supper. I want to kind of set the tone to make sure we understand what we're getting into, make sure you understand what the Lord's Supper is about. So let's put that first idea on the screen. As we think about the Lord's Supper, the first thing I want you to understand is the Lord's Supper does not save you. All right, so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're so happy you came to worship with us and to be a part of this church. But if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is not for you, right? This is for believers, the body of Christ as we partake together. But the Lord's Supper doesn't save you, right? Drinking of of the little cup and eating the bread is not going to lead to salvation. Salvation is found only in Christ. Okay, it's not found in the Lord's Supper. This is symbolic. We're going to talk about the symbolism this morning, but it doesn't save you. Here's the next thing I want you to get. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. Right? I said that just a minute ago. It's an opportunity for the body of Christ to be unified, to come together, partake together in the Lord's Supper. And then the third thing this morning, the bread and the wine don't actually turn in the body and the blood of Jesus. Like our Catholic friends would say something different, right? They would, say, uh, they would use this big fancy word, transubstantiation. It means that the the bread, they believe, turns into the actual body of Christ, the wine turns into blood. We don't believe the scripture teaches that. I'm happy to kind of walk through that with you to explain that to you biblically. If we have more time, you're welcome to come up front at the end or meet me for lunch and I'll explain that to you. But we would argue the scripture does not teach that the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ. Now, we've kind of set the tone. We've kind of seen some big picture stuff that you find in other parts of Scripture. Now let's spend some real time looking at the Scripture itself. So I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 23. You can follow along in your Bibles. We also have it on the screen. Written by Paul. He's speaking of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper that the disciples took together just before Jesus was arrested. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself now we're gonna answer these questions we're gonna walk through these questions the the sword method questions that I've given you already And we're going to answer them, right? I'm just modeling this for you. I'm helping you understand how you can do this, how you can take this model. It's a very reproducible model, a simple model for you to use. How can I take this model and use it to study God's word? So the first question we ask is what do I learn about God, right? That would be God the Father, Jesus the Holy Spirit. What do I learn about God? Here's some simple things right out of this scripture that we can take, right? And so if you're asking this question to your kids or to your co-workers, or to friends. These are simple things they can pull out and answer. We see several things. One thing we see in verse 23 is that Jesus was betrayed, right? We can see that very simply in verse 23. Jesus was betrayed. We can see that he ate the Last Supper with his disciples, verses 23 through 26. We can see that the bread represents the body of Jesus, and the wine represents his blood, right? Right? So what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about God? We see very simply that he was betrayed, that he ate this last meal with his followers, that he helped them understand that the wine they were about to drink represented the blood he was going to shed, and the bread they were going to eat represented the body that was broken for them. Now, I want to spend some time thinking about this with you, right? I want to delve in a little more deeply Because I want you to see it, I want you to understand kind of where we're going and and what this means. Because for the followers of Jesus, uh, for his disciples, this meal that they had together dated back for about 2,000 years. I want to explain what this means. The followers of Jesus met together. You may remember the story, right? Jesus uh, lived his life, he was a sinless man, walked to Jerusalem. And just hours before he was arrested, he had this meal in the upper room with his followers. Now, to his followers, this was the Passover meal. In fact, Luke 22, verse 14 says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table, right? They would have laid down at the table together. They didn't sit in chairs like we do. And the apostles with him, and he said to them, this is Jesus, I have earnestly desired to eat this, here's the word, Passover with you before I suffer. Now, I never miss the opportunity of explaining the Passover because it's such a big deal in the Old Testament, it was such a big deal to the followers of Christ. It's such a big deal to the Jewish people still today, and it has great symbolism for Christ and for his followers. So if you don't remember, the story it dates all the way back to the book of Exodus. You may remember that the children of Israel were enslaved to the Egyptian people, right? they have been in slavery about 400 years, and God miraculously comes to Moses in the burning bush. You probably remember the story. Like out of obscurity, the Lord calls Moses, he calls him through this burning bush, and he basically says to Moses, listen, I need you to go and find Pharaoh, I need you to tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And after some interesting discussion with the Lord, Moses agrees, he goes to the Pharaoh and he says, listen, Pharaoh, the Lord says, you need to let these people go. Pharaoh basically says, "Uh uh-uh, like not gonna happen, we're not letting these people go. And so God sends the first plague. Moses goes back, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, God sends the second plague. On and on this goes until nine plagues have come and gone. Moses goes back to the Pharaoh and says, listen, finally, one last time, trust me, you need to let the people go. The Pharaoh says, I'm not letting those people go. God sends the 10th plague. Now, the 10th plague is the death angel, right? And God says to the people of Israel living in Egypt, listen, if you want to survive this death angel, you need to take this lamb and you need to kill it, right? You need to sacrifice it. Now, I'm going to pick up in the scripture here on Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb, speaking of the lamb they use, shall be without blemish. Now, you're going to see some things here that point ahead to Jesus. I'm going to pick up on here in just a second. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it till the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they said, take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which you eat. So in other words, you're to take this lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, paint it over the frames of the door in your house. Verse 12, this is the Lord speaking. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. I will see the blood. I will, here it is, pass over. There's the word. Pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt, right? Just think about the symbolism here, right? We're, we're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And God says to his people, listen, I need you to take a perfect lamb. I need you to sacrifice that lamb. I need you to take that blood, paint it over the doorpost. And when I see the lamb that has been slain, I will pass over your house. I won't execute judgment on you. Instead, I'll see the blood and I'll pass over and no one in your household will be punished. It's this beautiful picture of who Christ would be, the perfect lamb. His blood was slain for us. He offered forgiveness on the cross for our sins. When we're washed in his blood, the Lord passes over us. He forgives us of our sins. It's a picture to the people of Israel Hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, it's a prophecy looking ahead to Jesus. And so the Jewish people understood this Passover feast. And so they would celebrate this feast year after year after year. They still do, by the way, devout Jews still celebrate this. And so when Jesus gathered his disciples together, this is important, right? He said to these men, listen, you've grown up your whole life thinking about this Passover, You've grown up your whole life thinking about the lamb and the blood and the sacrifice and the passing over and the death angel. You've grown up your whole life celebrating the Passover. Watch, now Jesus says, I want you to understand that what you've taken as a Passover up to this point will now become a meal that the followers in the near future and for centuries to come will partake together. And when they do it, instead of remembering the Passover, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they'll remember me. That's what Jesus says. He's taking the symbolism of the Passover. The body, which is for you, the bread that he has been broken, symbolizes his death on the cross. The wine or the blood shed for them symbolizes his blood that he gave. So he's saying, listen, this is You, this is your life, this is your story, the Jewish story, the Passover, all they celebrated, all the things that you've known up to this point. I'm taking those same ideas, and I'm now going to tell you that when you do this, you need to remember me. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the importance of this moment for these guys. But just imagine, I'm kind of putting this, and this is not a great analogy, but just imagine taking... Christmas and New Year's and the 4th of July and three or four Thanksgiving of your other favorite holidays that you celebrate, rolling them into one. That's important, the Passover was for them. It's a big deal, a big deal. And Jesus says, listen, from now on when you do this, you need to remember me. And so as we take of the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes, and I'm going to show you the scripture here in just a, a, a second or two, the significance of what we're doing is the remembering of the death of Jesus, remember that his body was broken like the bread, remember that his blood was spilled out like the wine, and so when we partake this together, we remember. Now that's what we learn about God, right? Now I've told you when we use this sword method that sometimes some questions say a lot more than others. So we learn a lot about God in this passage of Scripture. There's not a lot, if we go to question, two, what I learn about man, not very much about man. A little bit about sin, which we're going to come back to in just a minute. The idea of taking the Lord's Supper and the judgment that I'm going to read in just a minute. But I'm going to go to question number four. Right? What do we learn about God? We've answered that. Question four is, what are we supposed to obey? So pull that up if you would. Because there's several important things we're supposed to obey. As we understand the Passover the significance of the Lord's Supper as we understand the Lord and all we see in the symbol uh, of the body and the blood and all the things he did on the cross. There's obedience for us now in this. It's not enough just to understand it, right? A big part of the Christian walk is understanding. Another big part is obeying, right? So there's several things we can learn, right? What can we obey in this passage of scripture? One is we can remember the sacrifice of Jesus during the Lord's Supper. Right? That's one of the big things we do. We're supposed to remember all that he did. We're supposed to proclaim the death of Jesus, and we're to examine ourselves. Now, those are three very clear things we can do. Remember, proclaim, and examine. So I'm going to think through those with you just for a few minutes. And if you were at home with your family, if you were talking this with your kids or a Bible study at work, or had an opportunity to lead some other people, you can just imagine the discussion that would come from this. What does it mean to remember the sacrifice? How do we remember, right? How should we be proclaiming? How are we to examine ourselves? And so I want to think through those just for a few minutes together. I want you to look at verse 27 and 28 and 29 again. Pull those scriptures up, if you would, for me. Because I want you to notice what the scripture says here. There's a very clear understanding here. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread... And drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the Lord, right? Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eat, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So 27 and 29 are warnings, right? Be aware, be careful, right? Don't eat in an unworthy manner. If you do, you're going to bring judgment on yourself. They're like red flags waving in 27 and 29. We need to be aware of that. We need to understand that. We need to think through that. So, the obedience for us, what do we do about that judgment? What what do we do about understanding that properly? Comes in verse 28. So, the warnings, and in the middle is the idea of obedience. Let a person examine himself. So, so there's this idea as we take of the Lord's Supper, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, that there's this process of examination. Now, we see this in other parts of Scripture. right? In fact, we see other examples where the people of the Lord called out to God and said, Lord, Lord, reveal to me things in my heart that I need to change. For example, Psalm chapter 139, beginning in verse 23. The psalmist said, search me, God know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So there's this idea scripturally that we should constantly be examining our hearts, asking the Lord to reveal to us things that need to change We need to constantly be praying through and studying God's word so we can know, are we living our lives according to the standard of the scripture? Search me, God. Reveal in my life things that I need to do differently. Now, here's the difficult part for us, and I'm going to offend some of you. So, deep breath. go and get ready. We're to examine ourselves. We're not called to examine others. But it's so much more fun to examine everybody else, isn't it? so much more fun to, because I know exactly what you're doing wrong, man, I know exactly what you're doing, I can see it, I read it on Facebook, I heard the gossip at the beauty shop, right, or wherever you're going nowadays, I know exactly what you're doing wrong, and I'm telling you, I've talked to my wife about it, I've talked to three or four friends about it, we all know what you're doing wrong, we all know how to fix it, right, we're good at that, and that feels good, doesn't it, man, that feels so good sometimes to to gossip maybe be the word or think about somebody else or try to figure out what you need to do better. The problem with that mindset is that's not what the Scripture teaches us to do. That verse doesn't say examine, verse 28 doesn't say examine everybody else in here and then y'all eat together. It doesn't say that. It says what? Let a person examine himself, right? It's your job to examine yourself. I can promise you, I can promise you, everybody else in here has issues too, I promise. They do. But you can't change those issues. Did you know that? Like I realized a long time ago, the Holy Spirit is a lot better at changing your heart than I am. And so all I can really do is examine myself. And so I examine my heart. I'm going to give you three areas we need to examine. Fine. So we're supposed to examine ourselves. I'm not supposed to think about that guy or that lady. I'm supposed to examine myself. What am I supposed to examine? Here are three things that we can examine. The first one, we should examine to see if we're actually believers, right? Put that up. We've got those three things there. What are we examining ourselves on? The first one, are we believers? Are we Christian? Because the first idea is we need to be followers of Jesus Christ before we partake of this. Listen, if you're here this morning and not a believer, again, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I would love to talk to you in this service. You're welcome to walk down and talk to me. We can spend some time. I'll take you to lunch even if you want to know more about Christ and I can share with you what salvation in Jesus Christ looks like. I'm happy to explain that to you. It's found only in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins through Christ. But the Lord's Supper is just for believers, right? So we need to make sure we're Christians first. The second thing we need to examine is, is there sin in our lives? Uh, Is there something in our life we need to ask forgiveness for? Is there something we've been doing? Have we kind of been led astray? Is there something we're dealing with? Is there something we need to repent of? And that's between you and the Lord. And then the third examination is we should examine our unity within the body. Paul talks about this idea about discerning the body and understanding who's in the body and being sure there's unity, right? A lot of First Corinthians was written to this church to remind them to be unified in Christ. And so if you've got something against somebody, if you're in an argument with somebody, if there's something that's happened in the church and there's a couple of people that are mad, this is a great opportunity for you to examine your heart and to get that right. But I just want to encourage you, right? There's this moment leading up to the Lord's Supper, and I hope you're doing it even now. We'll give you during the time of invitation here in just a few minutes this chance to do it as well. But there should be this time, this process of examination. Lord, am I living how I should? Is there sin I should repent is there somebody I need to go to and fix, right? Because we want to come to the Lord's Supper in a way that's honoring to Christ. So we need to examine our hearts. Another big thing we ought to be doing is remembering. That's what Jesus says. Right? Christ reminds us in verse 24 and 25. Pull those verses up if you would, please. I want to see those very quickly. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four 24. It says, when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, it's amazing to me, Jesus did a lot of incredible things in his ministry. I mean, he walked on water, uh, he healed the blind, he raised people from the dead, and of all the incredible things that he did, the one thing he wanted people to remember the most is what he accomplished on the cross. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say, listen, when you take this meal, remember that time I walked on the water? Wasn't that cool? Remember that time? Or remember that time I raised Lazarus from the dead? You remember that time? You remember when I got up on the mountain and I I spoke beside the Sea of Galilee and I gave that sermon that we now call the Sermon on the Mount? Remember when I did that, how cool that was? Remember that? That's not what he says. He says, listen, I'm about to do something for you that's going to change the world. I'm going to give my life on the cross. And when I do that from now on, whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup, you do this in remembrance of me. All right? Now I want to take it a step farther because this, this is what Christians, this is where Christians sometimes struggle. Maybe you get that. You're like, yep, I get it. I understand the symbolism there of of the bread and of the wine. I get that. I know what I'm supposed to remember. When I partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember what Christ did and all he gave for me. But I want you to look at verse 26 because this is important, right? We're supposed to remember these things. But look at verse 26. It takes it a step farther. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, what's the next word there? We're gonna rewind, try it again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you what's the word there? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? It's good that we remember. It is important. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper and the body and the blood matters. We are to remember. But if all we ever do is remember, we're missing a truth because we're supposed to remember and what? Proclaim. Now, it's college football season, and if y'all have been around for any amount of time, you know that I love college football. Uh, I'm excited because, praise the Lord, it seems to be back, right? We're all hoping and praying the SEC kicks off this week, and I love college football. If you've ever been to a college football game and you've ever tailgated, right, when you walk by people that are tailgating, you don't ever wonder who they're pulling for, do you? Like if you go to the Auburn-Alabama game, you wouldn't walk through the stadium or walk through the tailgating section and go, are you guys for Auburn or Alabama? (laughs) Because I can't really tell about what you're doing. You know, you've got pinks and greens up here and I don't know what you're, I mean, it's clear they're either wearing one color or there's no doubt who they're pulling for. Right? Their their clothing, they've probably got the fight song playing in the background. Maybe they got pictures hung on the tin of their favorite players over the years. There's no doubt who they're pulling for. They have proclaimed to you very clearly their allegiance, haven't they? Right? How often are we proclaiming the death of Christ to the world? Like, are we better at proclaiming our favorite college football team than we are Jesus? Maybe. If so, what what are we going to do about that? Because Jesus says, listen, I, I want you to remember, I'm going to sacrifice my body for you. I'm going to give my life for you. Right? The blood that gives me physical human life on this earth is going to drain out for me and I'm going to die. For you. For your sins. Right? Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I'm going to do all these things and I want you to remember all these things, but I also want you to proclaim them to others. It's not enough just to keep it to yourself. You you need to be actively sharing with others. So I'm going to give you three things as I kind of wind this thing down this morning. What are we proclaiming about the death of Christ? What should we be proclaiming to the world? Here's the first thing. We are proclaiming the centrality of the cross, right? The cross and what Jesus accomplished changed the world. Did you know that? Period. There is no other moment in human history that is as significant or as important as what Jesus did for us. He changed the way we live now. He changed the way we're going to live in eternity. And so when we proclaim Christ, we proclaim the centrality and the importance of what he did. The second thing is we're proclaiming Jesus had victory over death. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal on immorality immortality, <laughs> then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, As followers of Christ, as Christians, we've been given an eternal hope, haven't we? We're no longer fearful of this world or of death. That came because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And then thirdly, we're proclaiming our thankfulness. You know, one of the things I think we miss sometimes in the Lord's Supper is we we take a look at this scripture and we see what happened. but We forget exactly Jesus' mindset in going into this, right? Jesus is about to give his life in, in probably the most horrendous way possible. I don't know if there's anything worse that could have happened to him physically on this earth. And yet the Bible says in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 11, that when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this and remember it to me. It doesn't say when he was somber or when he was mad or when he was upset or he couldn't believe this was about to happen. It says instead when he'd given thanks, like thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do. Thank you for allowing me to give my life and sacrifice for the world. Thank you for my body being broken. Thank you for my blood being spilled. Just hours before his crucifixion, he loved and trusted the Father so much, he was willing to be thankful and endure the cross for our sins. That should lead us to a place of thanksgiving and celebration and praise. Now, the final question in this model that I've been giving you, we've answered kind of the four questions. What does this mean for us? How are we to apply this to our lives? So what do we do with all this? We've learned about the Lord's Supper, we've gone in some detail about who God, what Jesus did, about his sacrifice, about remembering, about proclaiming, about giving thanks and all that he did on the cross for us. How do we apply this to our lives? Here's how we apply it to our lives. In, in a, a world that seems to be spinning out of control, we seem to be more busy than we've ever been before. The Lord's Supper is this uh, incredible, unique gift God has given to us just to breathe to refocus, and to remember. And so the way you're going to be obedient this morning is you're going to examine your hearts, you're going to prepare your hearts, and in just a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Now, our praise team is going to come out and start here in just a second. Before they do, I want to show you what's next week. I've been doing this every week. Pull up next week's scripture. I'm giving it to you in advance. I'm going to preach that next week because I want you to take it home with your family, if you haven't done it yet, practice the sword model. Work through the questions with your family, with your kids, with your grandkids, spouse, friends, whatever, work through it, learn it, apply it. Next week, I'm gonna preach it. Now listen, we do the Lord's Supper here in just a second. Our team's gonna come out, they're gonna sing. You use this time as a time of preparation. Right? Examine your hearts, prepare your hearts, still your souls, prepare to take together of the Lord's Supper, okay? Now let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather. We thank you for this beautiful, clear picture, Father, of the Lord's Supper, of what it means, of what it symbolizes, of why it's so important. Father, thank you for the opportunity you've given us now to understand it. And now for the next few moments, Lord, as we sing and praise your name, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to examine our hearts, to be prepared, to partake of the Lord's Supper, remembering... And then give us the courage to proclaim, Lord, all you are to a lost and dying world. We thank you, and we love you, and Father, we remember. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.